Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, my name is Nikesh Shukla. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of the Brown Baby Podcast, a parenting podcast where I ask the question, how do we raise our kids to be joyful and realistic when the world is so bleak and I'm so angry and sad? Honestly, this podcast is not as bleak as it sounds. Each week I have writers and artists and chefs and musicians and the such on to talk about their parenting journeys, the highs and the lows and the joys and the realisms of being a parent. It's an open and honest and sometimes funny conversation with some of my favourite people. Today's guest is Nadia Hussain. More on her in a second. Look, I have a book out tomorrow. When this podcast drops, the book is out tomorrow, 4th February 2021. If you're listening to this after that date the book is out now please buy the book it's called brown baby a memoir of race family and home and it's about my parenting journey it's about the conversations i've had with my daughters about racism the patriarchy climate change mental health or basically all of the stuff that keeps me up at night it's had a heap of great reviews already from the guardian the independent stylist and amazing quotes from people like nadia hussein bernardine evaristo deborah francis white and more amazing people, Nish Kumar, Max Porter. So we're in lockdown. It's hard to get the word out there. A lot of bookshops are doing click and collect. They don't have their amazing storefronts open to showcase the books. And so I kind of have to do the hard sell myself. If you're a fan of the podcast, please, please buy the book from wherever you get them. Anywhere, please just do buy it. There is a link to my bookshop.org affiliate uh, storefront thing in the show notes. And you can get the book from there. I will no longer do the hard sell. All I will say is that this podcast is free and I would love to keep it free. And book sales keep the wolves from the door. And my kids are scared of wolves. Okay, my guest this week is Nadia Hussain, MBE. I love Nadia. She is sort of responsible for The Good Immigrant. It was sort of the treatment of her in the press uh, that led me and a couple of friends to ask questions about this whole good immigrant narrative and it then inspired the book. She's the author of six recipe books, the most recent being The Delicious Nadia Bakes. She has a memoir called Finding My Voice, a kid's book called My Monster and Me, a fiction novel called The Secret Lives of the Amir Sisters. And you know what? She is one of the most gloriously kind and generous and warm-hearted people I've ever met. And while we've only met three times, I feel like I've known her my entire life. 
We talk about what it's like for her being an icon, her childhood kitchen and what her kids like cooking. And she gives some great advice on uh, how to be with your kids in lockdown. Please enjoy the podcast, Nadia Hussain. Welcome to the podcast, Nadia Hussain. How are you today? Hello. Oh, God. It's, you know what? It's really nice to do something a little bit different because I found myself just making lunches and pickling everything at the moment. That's all <laughs> I, that is literally all I'm doing. It's like, what can I... I go to bed thinking, what can I pickle? Like, it's the long... It's a forgotten art. Like, my aunties, my relatives back in Bangladesh all pickled. They pickled everything because they didn't throw anything away. And that is, it's weird because this lockdown has meant that I've just like gone back to doing the things that I probably would have naturally done if I lived in Bangladesh. So it's really odd, but I've been pickling everything. What's the most random thing you've pickled? Uh, nothing too random. I did some lemons. I've been, I've been fermenting some lemons for, for a month now. And then I'll pickle those, which are delicious. Um, but then I did some pickled scotch bonnets, which just like if every time I open the jar, someone coughs. <laughs> <laughs> I have been, while you've been pickling stuff, I have been watching for the millionth time Seinfeld. But I'm not actually watching it. I'm just having it on in the background while I doom scroll the internet. Yeah. Hoping to find some good news somewhere. Did you find and, it in Seinfeld? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, when you, you put on a pair of trainers that you haven't worn for a really long time and your foot fits perfectly into them and it just yeah. feels so comfortable and you're immediately like, oh, I remember being, I remember yeah. like great times in these shoes. That's what it feels like watching Well, Seinfeld. I don't know how that feels because I don't think I've worn trainers or shoes for a really long time apart from <laughs> and I only need like sliders to go and do the bins. That's it. Like <laughs> shoes, what shoes? Yeah. yeah. T today I, I was feeling a bit low, so I thought I am not going to wear anything elasticated. I'm going to put some jeans on just to remind myself of what it feels like to wear normal clothes. Yeah. Like, what is that all about? I mean, I, I am in pajamas. Bottom half is definitely all pajamas, and the rest is like semi-dressed. But it, it, it's it's a weird old. Like, I I've spent weeks watching Married at First Sight Australia. I mean, I don't even know why. I'm watching it, but it does make me feel good about my life <laughs> and my marriage. It does make me feel good about it. So whatever works, right? Yeah. So so obviously we're we're recording this uh, during lockdown seventeen million lockdown three. But when lockdown the first lockdown happened, and you know, I mean, I just want to talk about what happened to the family dynamics when everyone kind of descended onto the house because uh, I read this essay by Zadie Smith. Uh, she wrote this small uh, short book of essays about lockdown called intimations and in one of them it's called something to do where she kind of equates make, making banana bread and writing as just stuff that we do and i think she's sort of making this point that like yes we can kind of see feeding ourselves or making great art as something that kind of speaks to something within our souls but also they are things that you kind of do to pass time in times of great uncertainty and my big thing when i was now here in this room in this house and my kids were home and my partner was home my big worry was like they're gonna discover what i actually do for a living because sometimes <laughs> i'll be like i need to watch that video on youtube obviously or i might be reading and then they'll come in and they'll go aren't you supposed to be working i'll be like this is work and like for you like 
pickling and like baking and making stuff and writing and watching stuff like that's all part of your job like how did it feel when everything kind of descended into the house for you it's it's really weird because actually so much of my work is done from home like when i'm writing recipes or writing a cookbook it's i don't have a a specialized kitchen or a test kitchen i do everything from my very small kitchen in the house and that hasn't changed for me in the i mean i that's so I find myself when I'm writing a book, like I'll be in a bubble in the kitchen and the kids just come in and eat whatever for about two months. They don't have <laughs> a pattern. They kind of come in and they're like, can we have cake for dinner? It's like, yeah, go have cake for dinner. And and so, you know, like so that, for them, I suppose in some ways that was normal, but I wasn't actually writing that many recipes during lockdown. And also there was a shortage of flour and eggs. And I, as a baker, you would think that I have this, everyone asks me, didn't you have this like secret supply where you could get bread, a flour and yeast? And I was like, no, no, not even me. So, you know, um, I ran out of stuff. The only thing I didn't run out of was eggs because we've got chickens. So for me, I think being at home felt very normal. What was really weird for, for, for us was the fact that we were then we had to all kind of create our own spaces so the mm. boys who are teenagers uh they and, and my little girl they all kind of have they're, they're in their bedrooms but they've created their spaces where they work and what i found really interesting was that everybody had their own spaces but the only person's space that constantly got completely like there's no boundaries was my space because the kitchen is communal mm. and uh where i'm writing and working there wasn't that I would you know like I knew that they're in a class right now so I'm not going to go in their room or my husband's working in his office so I was like right no not to go in there um and my little girl you know they're all doing stuff so I know not to go into those spaces but because my work area is communal I was the only one that had no boundaries so it was really for me that was really weird because um when I'm normally in the kitchen testing they're at school husband's in the office we don't see each other till lunchtime maybe dinner time so I just got, it's just me and the cat so it's quite nice but now it's just kind of like we're constantly crossing paths mm. and 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 i think that's um setting out those boundaries very early on was really important but then i found that quite stressful like i found that like it, it stopped being our home it's it became this workplace and i and that really like that really affected me in a way that i didn't expect it to so i just said nope I'm, and, and this is completely unlike me i like rules i like boundaries I like to know where things are um, and, and I like a, I love a good schedule, love a good schedule. And <laughs> for me, I was like, no, you know what? We're, we're not going to do this. We are not going to do this. You can come down and it's OK to, you know, um, relax those rules just a little bit. And so now it's just become a little bit easier this time around because we are just slightly more relaxed. And I think that just makes it easy for all of us because home is now work and work is now home for all of us so we just kind of like trying to find ways of just easing into it and relax. it doesn't get easier does it not really third time round. no although I think I'm more used to being here because I guess in the before times because I teach teach in London or you know because you know when you work in tv everyone's always like can you just pop into the office for a half an hour meeting and I'm like dude I live in Bristol yeah. And but still, you kind of you know I was just out in the world a lot, and I had had this co-working space. But then, this room has become my office, and where I exercise, and where I doom scroll Twitter, and where I you know watch stuff, and where I kind of have social time with my friends. And this is kind of what was the room where my dad stays when he comes to visit, when he was able to come mm. visit, is now like my little hovel. 
and I really like having this sort of separation from the rest of the house. Um, but the thing that you said that was really interesting that I just want to kind of come back to because I think it's something that you know we've talked about a little bit. You know, where in in the book in Brown Baby I write a lot about the kitchen as the communal space. It's kind of the center of the universe for so many families. It's like one of the true communal spaces. And you know, obviously, when I was growing up, my mum that was her domain, and mm. um, I look back at that time in in that kitchen. I wondered if you could just tell me a little bit about your mum's kitchen when you were growing up and um, your memories of that. Mum's kitchen, like, I mean, it's it's really sweet because when I read the book, it's like, um, can I just say it was like I've. It's the book that everybody should read. Any brown baby should read this book. My son read it and he was like, Mum, this is amazing. Because for the, fir for the first time in his life, he, could, he was familiar with the stories, the, the words, and it was things that he could relate to. And that doesn't often happen. Um, and I know growing up as a teenager, that didn't happen for me. So it's the book that every brown baby or, and everyone should read because it's just so beautifully written. And you do talk about that and you talk about the kitchen. And for me... Um, growing up, like we had a really big, and when we say family, uh, like lots of Asian families, we, our family wasn't nuclear. It wasn't mum, dad, and children. You know, yeah. it was extended. It was uncles, aunts, their, you know, their children, and and you know, and that extended out to the neighbours. You know, it was open door. We never had, you know, no, nothing was ever locked. Um, and so my mum spent a lot of time in the kitchen, cooking. And, and 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 you could see it in her face. She's we, there's we're one. I'm one of six, and um, with the extended family, I think in total on a weekend, if everyone came around, it's something like fifty people in a terraced house, mm. uh, where we'd all sit and eat together, and 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 we'd do that between different houses. And and growing up, my mum resented the kitchen. She didn't like being in. She cooked for necessity. She didn't cook because mm. she liked being in the kitchen. She kind of cooked. She cleaned and, and any time I was really curious, myself and my sister, the one that's just older than me, we would we'd be really curious about what she's cooking and what she's putting in. My mum would just say, just 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 leave me alone. Like she was quite like harsh. She was quite brash in the kitchen, like, nope, get out of here. I'm cooking. And it was always her space. And so we never I never learnt cooking from my mum. You know, I never learnt to cook from my mum. But I think what she didn't realise was that in her cooking and her feeding that like it, from the I always felt like outside of her kitchen I never felt like I was ever a part of that that central point in the house we were always kind of onlookers uh, and when you're looking on into a kitchen what you get is this I remember looking in and it was always this frustrated mum cooking way more than she needed to and it was always the smells we could smell what she was cooking we weren't allowed in but we're like oh <laughs> we know what she's cooking so we could tell what she was cooking and I think it's really weird because I've, it's completely flipped now. Like the kitchen is completely the central point in our house and mm. my kids can comfortably come in and, 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 and make themselves a drink and, 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 you know, help me with the cooking. And it's just become the, the, pl the place where we congregate. And that wasn't, that was the complete opposite for me growing up. Whereas like if my dad was in the kitchen, everybody's welcome, get in, help. I'll teach you how to use the <laughs> knife properly um he's like my dad would say oh what so it's just a finger you've got nine others doesn't matter you don't need to you know like he didn't he was like just get in get involved help taste so actually i got that when my dad was in the kitchen i was in there i was in there like a shot not with my mom mom was furious when she was cooking every single time 
did your dad do that sort of classic dad hero cooking where like dad's cooking everyone knows about it <laughs> which is like the one what? time a year my dad would cook everyone would know about it like it, like his mum would be ringing and like he'd be telling her that he'd be cooking and it would be like oh it's just an omelette dad. see dad <laughs> see dad dad yeah dad ran restaurants so he was used to being in the kitchen mm. um and so but for him he would always cook like my mum would cook like the stuff that would feed the kids my dad would cook things that take 12 hours to cook so if it wasn't it, it, it could be tripe it could be cow's feet it could be hearts and liver and lungs and it just it's all the stinky smelly stuff that needs loads of work and a lot of boiling and a lot of cleaning and that's the stuff he would do and my mum would just say do it on a day when I'm not in the kitchen because I don't want to be anywhere around anywhere near this kitchen so yeah he was he dad's an amazing cook dad's an amazing cook but he's extremely adventurous so mm. And I love it. I, I hate being in the kitchen with my mum, even to this day. Like every time we're together, she's just like, just do as you're told. That's what her first thing. She's like, this is what I need doing. This is how it needs doing. Do as you're told and leave. And I was like, okay. That's so, so classic Asian parent. You can win a televised cooking competition, essentially. And your mum will be like, I'm the parent here. My mum had this sort of really interesting contradiction where she was always like, I will make all the meals because I am the provider of food. That's what I do. And when I expressed interest in learning how to cook things, she'd always be like, well, if, if I teach you my secrets and you'll stop coming round. But then at the same time, she really wanted me to know her, her mm. secrets because she sort of knew that she wouldn't always be around. And one of my, one of my most treasured possessions that I have is on, on, our wedding day my wife and I were presented with a cookery book of recipes from our family and there are three recipes from my mum in there classically no measurements on anything like of course how much garam masala just you just put enough as much as you need I'm like yeah but how how much and she's she's like you could buy five different brands of garam masala they all taste different you just have to work out yeah. how much of each one and I didn't understand any of that until I actually started cooking myself can you can you tell me a little bit about about your kind of early adventures in in a kitchen like making making stuff for yourself and how you kind of turned what you saw from your mum as kind of duty hassle and duty into something that you really enjoyed well the first time so mum like I said you're like she was really quite you know like she was very strict about nobody goes in the kitchen and so when she'd cleaned and tidied we'd never go in the kitchen and it was one day she'd gone off somewhere and she didn't make it back in time and I was like thinking and and it I think I've always been weird I, I, I always used to think I'm not maternal but when you've got lots of brothers and sisters you just kind of naturally I think you have that kind of need to look after and I remember looking at the time thinking it's getting late and it was something like nine o'clock we hadn't had dinner mum was out and obviously something had happened and she couldn't get back and and we were at home and I was I, I might have been maybe 12 maybe 13 and then I rang my mum she was at my auntie's house and she and she did she wasn't caught up with anything serious I'm sure she was just like doing that thing where she's like okay I'm gonna go now and she sat down again for another cup of tea or a chat and I said to her mum like there's nothing to eat what shall I do and she said okay well cook an omelette I was like wow she actually like that was a big moment for me I was like whoa she said I could cook an omelette and I know I'd cook an omelette she just never lets me do it mm. I was like oh I can do this I can do this what I didn't know was how many eggs to put <laughs> in an omelette and so like we used to buy these 30 eggs in a tray from the Asian supermarket and I was like 22 eggs that'll do <laughs> very scientific right? figure there as well. I was like that's it right 
22 <laughs> eggs. I've seen her use 22 eggs. That's what I'm going to do. So I made a 22 egg omelette. And you know that thing when you make an omelette and it just puffs up? And I'm like, oh, 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 it's going to go. It's going to go. It's going to go. And then it deflates a little bit, doesn't it? So I cooked this 22 egg omelette, which was hideous because the ratios were completely wrong. Not enough onion, not enough coriander, not enough chili. It was just like lightly flavored with 22 eggs. And my mom came in and she was furious. She was like, 22 eggs. Do you know how expensive that is? And, oh, but we ate, we ate like kings. We ate like kings. It was great. <laughs> um, but she never let me, like, because she never let me in the kitchen, I was always quite experimental with my dad. So we would cook lots of things in the kitchen with my dad. But for me, I think a big turning point in my um, curiosity was when I baked in school. Mm. So I was at school and, and, and my teacher at the time, she said, oh, well, you know, she was baking this cake. And obviously for, for, obviously for us, everything was stovetop. So... I'd never seen my mum put anything in the oven and I did think it was for storage because she had all her frying pans and all her samosa <laughs> pans in there. So that I just yeah, thought it was just too. storage. And also, yeah, well, I, and, and also when I used to watch telly and I used to see Delia baking cakes, her oven was in the wall. She didn't have a standalone oven like we had or like my aunties had. She had this thing that was in the wall and to me that was an oven what we had was just storage so I never kind of put the two together as a kid I never put the two together and at school we had the standalone ovens and my teacher was mixing eggs and flour and sugar and bearing in mind I never actually physically seen that being done ever in my life and in she in it goes and I thought she I said miss you've gone mad I said miss you've gone mad why have you why why is the uh, why is the cupboard hot and she said that's an oven and then she's just like you could see the look on her face she was like that's an oven what's wrong with you <laughs> out comes this cake and i remember that day i went home and i said you've been lying to me this whole time i said to my mom <laughs> and i whacked everything out and she was like what are you doing took everything out and, I, and i'm like trying to turn this hob which is like greased shut because it never gets used and i was like this is an oven, mum, this turns on. And she said, I, I knew, I know already. I already know that this is an oven. And I, honestly, I felt so betrayed. I felt so betrayed by my mother. I was like, you knew this whole time and you never once let me bake a cake. And I never baked a cake in that oven ever. <laughs> <laughs> I know you you were saying that the, the kitchen in your, your place is a, a communal space, but you know when your kids show interest in what you're doing, I, I'm assuming they're probably not like, hey, can I help you pickle stuff? But... Do, are they quite involved in in your experimentations uh on your like when you're working out recipes and stuff how do, do they get involved and help out they are my chief taste testers so they whenever i'm testing recipes i always kind of <clears throat> so we have like if there's a sticky note on it it means you can't eat it yet which means i probably have to photograph it or make notes or or whatever so once that sticky note is off you can go to town and they're really good so I always kind of make things and say, what do you think of that? And, and, and they're really, they're getting better. You know, they'll say, oh, mom, I think that, that thing needs a bit more lemon. I think there's not enough tang in there. Or I think that's too sweet or, or that's too, you know, so they're quite, they're getting better at it. But it's really funny when something works because when it works, it means that I don't have to do it again. But if they really like it, they're like, mm. and you can see the look on their face between the three of them. They're like, yeah, mm. I think mom, mom, I think you need to, maybe put more salt in it, maybe you need to test that again. <laughs> so um, so I, I remember for my last book, I did chicken donuts and they worked first time around and they were like, mm-hmm, mum, 
12 donuts later, they were like, you need to make these again because I think there's not enough seasoning. I'm like, liars. You're all liars. I know what you're doing here. You just want chicken donuts. That's one of their favorite things. To I eat. love that. I love that recipe, by the way. It's, it's really, it's really great. But th that's a really interesting. I'd never considered that before that, like when you're using your, using your kitchen as a workspace and it is a working kitchen, like part of the thing about being a parent who has to provide meals for their kids is you kind of have to provide food like make the hits make stuff that they like and all the rest of it and like if you're also using it to play about and um, work out new stuff they might be like i just want a chocolate chip cookie i don't want it to be like a cardamom infused chai shortbread and yeah yeah it is it... sorry no carry on no no, no carry on. I was no, just no, going to say, but I, I, I imagine that's the point in which you'd be like, the recipes are very freely available. You can you can make them yourself. Yeah, it, it's it's weird because they've kind of adjusted now. They've just adjusted to, to life as it is. And, and they just, and sometimes they like the simple, like I could bake and bake and bake. And sometimes they'd get, they'd, they'd come back from school and all they're looking for is the fruit bowl. They're like, can I just have an <laughs> apple? Can I just have a clementine? That's it. That's all they want. So the novelty's kind of worn off um but they love it when i get them involved to test things or taste things while i'm making them but that being said they love being in the kitchen they really enjoy just cooking and and it this lockdown i've made it a thing where they cook every meal every dinner so they they if they need help i can be in the kitchen i'm always in the kitchen so i'm like absolutely i can help out if you need something if you're unsure i i'm i'm i'm, I'm i'll be at hand so um they, they love that they love being in the kitchen but what i found really interesting is that they've grown up eating varied things so they've grown up eating lasagnas and shepherd's pies and and you know mac and cheese you name it like thai food all sorts of different types of food but also bangladeshi food but whenever they're cooking they never want to cook anything but bangladeshi mm. food it's really important for them i always say oh should we make i've got some mince at home should we make a shepherd's pie and my son's like no mom can i make just keema please mm. and then and they just want to make keema and they just want to eat rice and that's it and and i used to be really um it for me i don't know why but it felt really important for me to give them that kind of varied i wanted to teach them varied recipes from all around the world but what happened in the process was that they were not learning the recipes that are actually really important mm. to them the ones that they've grown up eating and and weirdly they became really good at doing lots of different things but they had no clue how to why a certain spice goes in here and and why my mum does it a certain way and, and and they didn't really understand how to cook a curry and and now that they've got free reign at dinner time every night they've had something bangladeshi and and that's their choice and i quite like that they've kind of steered towards mm. that because it's important to them and it must be important to them for a reason and i hadn't really thought about that but i said guys do you not ever want to just make like a lasagna or something they're like no 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 we really want to learn how to cook like nanu so they want to learn how to cook um recipes that their daddy makes and they want to know how their nanny makes a certain curry so like that's important to them so i've just kind of let mm. go now it's like you do whatever is important to you and i hadn't realized how important that was to them that's so beautiful because that is like this instinctual tethering to heritage you know and this whole thing about food as heritage and and being the thing that we pass down and also the way that you you know you do in your in your books um take um 
you know staples like bangladeshi staples or british staples or western staples or whatever you want to call, call them and and remix them in some way and and bring them in line with this this thing that you're so good at doing uh which is kind of i i, I don't love the word fusion but i guess it's probably most appropriate here and and actually what they want to do is kind of go no we want it to be as traditional as possible that's so beautiful yeah i mean that that shocked me i've got to say that shocked me a little bit because i think growing up as a youngster kind of kind of batting between the two worlds that am i british am i bangladeshi what am i i'm somewhere in between and that kind of desperately tried to bleach the brown out of me I, I, there was a point in my life as a teenager, I wanted to bleach the brown out completely. And it's like, I don't want to be brown because being brown isn't easy. Being brown makes you <clears throat> stand out. And so for so many, so many reasons, I think growing up as an Asian kid in, 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 a, in, in a Bangladeshi community, but eventually as I got older and got into the world of work and college, I realized there's a world outside of my brown world and I don't fit in it. And, and I think there was a point where I was just like, I don't want to be Bangladeshi. I, I don't want to cook curries. I don't want to smell of curry. I don't want any of that. I just want to be, I just want to fit in. I just want to be a part of that world and see what that feels like. And I think as, and, and that's something that I think as a, as a young mum, I would have done differently. You know, I would have spoken more Bengali at home so my kids mm. understand every single word and can speak it fluently. I would have fed them more curries and made them worry less about, getting a variation of different food. I would have just given them what was rightfully theirs, I suppose. And and for such a long time, I tried so hard to not be Bangladeshi that in some ways as a young mum, I took that away from my kids. But I feel like they've, uh, now as teenagers, and now that they're starting to own who they are, they've taken that back. And I'm so pleased that they've taken that back at young at such a young age because it took me, you know, like 25 years to take to own that, 25, 30 years to own that. But to be able to be, um, you know, early teens and be able to say, no, this is who I am and it's okay. And and I like that we cook curries and I like that we, this is how we do things. I like that we pickle things and that we save money and that we do, and, and you know, and, and and I think that's like, that's really important to them. And, and they want to know about who they are and, and where their grandparents are from and great grandparents are from and their history. Um, and, and I had a conversation with my son yesterday, which was really interesting. And it's something that he told me. Um, and he said, um, he was, I think he must have been seven or eight, and he was in school. And he said to his teacher, every, they were having that conversation, like, what do you want to be when you're older? And this is completely off subject. But um, he said, um, I want to be a farmer. So my granddad was a buffalo farmer and a rice farmer. So he said, I want to be a farmer. And this conversation came up because we were watching a farming program and it was all Caucasian white men, farms, children, all white people. And he said, mom, do brown people have farms? And I said, I don't know about this country. I, I've never met a brown person <laughs> in this country who has a farm, but I, I, in Bangladesh, we all have farms, you know, like loads of people have farms. And then I was talking about my granddad and how he farmed buffaloes and, 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 and grew rice. And he said, mom, you know, when I was in school, I said to the teacher that when I'm older, I want to be a farmer. I want to own a farmhouse and I want to have lots of land and lots of animals. And she said, are you sure you don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer? And he said, what do you think that meant? <laughs> And I was like, and I think he twigged already. I think he already twigged what that meant because, you know, 
being brown, surely your parents are encouraging you to become a doctor or a lawyer. You can't be a farmer. And, and, and he just said, do you think I can be a farmer? I said, you can be whatever you want. You can be whatever you want. And that's, and, and you know, these kids are learning these things really early and to be seven and to hear that and not really understand what that teacher meant, um, that's tough because it's taken him nearly the same amount of time to work out what she said after watching a, a program on the telly. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think it's those experiences that push you closer to who you are. Yeah, definitely. And obviously, like, we, you know, not to kind of make a political point, but, you know, we are having this conversation just as like one of the biggest protests in the world is happening in Delhi right now with with these with these farmers protest, protesting these horrific laws that have been enforced on them but to kind of root it back to your son like there is this thing the UK about the land and who owns the land and what for me it this these sort of conversations feel very precarious I think that's why there's been this really big movement in the last two to three years to really diversify nature writing because there is a sort of assumption that people of colour don't have any interest in, in nature or don't do anything in the British countryside. And it's not because they don't have interest, it's because people don't feel welcome. People don't feel necessarily like they can be farmers. You know, that there is there is like a brand of sausages that is sold entirely on the like the identity of the farmer being the black farmer. And that is sort of seen as like an anomaly. And I, I find that kind of bizarre. Also, like it sort of perplexes me that we're still sort of stuck in this sort of um all south asian parents want their kids to be doctors and lawyers thing and i just i thought that was something that kind of went away with my generation but you know it still seems to be a thing i think i i think it is <clears throat> and the fact that <clears throat> we're still having these conversations means that it is still very much a thing and i know very well you know now working in an industry um in publishing in television in media like I know that when I walk into, <clears throat> even now, I walk into a meeting and, uh, or walk into on, onto a set or whatever it is I'm doing, like if I'm the only person, like I identify myself as a Muslim, like outwardly. And so when I turn up and I know there's nobody like me uh, at a meeting, wherever I might be, or if I turn up and, and you know, I, I, there's like just one person of color and there's like 49 other people and they're all english there's a problem there is a problem because there's a re and 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 like often like i kind of ask myself and i and i i, I was asking i have these conversations with myself when i'm doing the dishes i have the most profound conversations with myself while i'm doing the dishes and 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 yesterday i was just kind of thinking why is that like why why is it that i still walk into a room and still it's just still only just me why is it that I still can't pick up a book and look at a name that I I identify with of an author, and 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 there's a and and I kind of look back at my parents' generation and and they just they they just they were surviving. They weren't. They didn't have time to dream. You know, they didn't have time to sit back and 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 dream for themselves, let alone for us. So you know, for them, it was just survival, and it's. And I think I never appreciated that as a child because I remember as a kid looking at them and saying, why, why, why did you not dream big? Why did you not buy that house in London that will be worth millions now? Like, why did you not do all of that? Why, why did you just work month on month on month? And it's because they were surviving, because they had massive families to look after back in Bangladesh and, 
um they had huge families here to look after and everybody looked after each other like nobody went without if you had more you gave up whatever was excess to your cousin or your nephew or nobody everybody was equal and i think when i look back at that i realize actually like they made those sacrifices uh for us today because actually you know i don't have to do that anymore i don't have to look after my brother or my sister or extended family i only have to look after myself and my children and that you know like that's a sacrifice they made and 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 it's so and they didn't have a they didn't have opportunities to dream like we do and sometimes i feel really selfish for dreaming big but somebody has to you have to otherwise how how do we pay it forward and i love that because i think also there is this thing <clears throat> my friend Musa Kwanga has just written this book uh, about his time at Eton and um, he writes about how he, there's this line where he goes in my culture we celebrate everything and then he goes on to describe how that sort of feeling of ambition was just sort of seen as dubious arrogance and it was sort of like taught out of him this mother's day celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from blue nile whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Something that, you know, we should be ambitious. And so here's a personal question that I want to ask you. Feel free to, feel free to mm-hmm. um, not answer. But being that person now you know you're you're incredibly recognizable in terms of like what you represent and as like this wonderful amazing role model like you know my my daughters are kind of learning about you in school and that like we have a couple of books uh you know which which profile amazing amazing women and both of them have write-ups about you about them like you're an icon you know a couple of months ago one of them wanted to know uh, tell me about nadia and so we we read we read the page in um stories for south asian girls i think it was yes yeah yeah and um and then i said to the the little one i was like you know you met nadia didn't you i held like, her yeah you did and I uh, did. she was she was like no i didn't i said yeah when you were a little baby you met nadia and i, I found the photo and I, I i sent it to you that day yeah and like you if, if you could have seen her face like i met this i and and you know really for for her looking at you was like how i 
would look at Michael Jordan or like oh. something like that when I was that age. And I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it's such a heavy burden to bear when you walk into these rooms, knowing that you're not just representing you and your family and your hopes and your dreams and your ambitions, but like what you do counts for so many more people. Yeah. How, how, how does that feel for you? Because it must be hard. Yeah, it's really, especially when you say things like icon, that's weird. It's like, no, 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 don't be silly. It's, <laughs> it's so weird. I still have to, like, long, you know, before lockdown, like, I would go to my mum's house and I'm only ever allowed to do the dishes. She's like, do the dishes, hoover the house. And like, so... I mean, just to say, you are an icon who is currently in their pyjamas. Like, yes, let, I let's am. Keep, let's, let's just yeah. keep it real for a second. <laughs> I think we're all in our pyjamas. No, you're in jeans, I'm not, aren't no, you? No, I'm, I'm wearing jeans so, so I can feel more, more professional today. Okay, not today, not for me um it's it's you know I get asked this question and I find it really like I think if you'd asked me five years ago I would have said to you oh no you know what I'm just happy cooking and baking and that's what I want to do and I I hadn't actually realized the until very recently I hadn't understand the I hadn't understood the importance of doing what I do and being on this platform because it's very easy just to kind of be here and just to do my job and and I love my job and I love cooking and I love writing and I love, I love the, like the creative platform. Um, and it is really tough because sometimes I find that if, if I was like, if I didn't have all of these other things to think about, I think as a creative person, I could be more creative or if not better at what I do, if I didn't have to constantly think about, oh, am I, you know, am I good enough? Am I doing the right thing? Am I being a right, the right role model? And, and, you know, like, am I, you know, like it just constantly having to wear these different hats. Mm. Um, and I think if I didn't have to constantly answer these questions and worry about those things, I think creatively as, a, as somebody who loves to write and cook, I would be so much better at what I, what, what I do. But I understand fully now, sort of five and a half years later, like I have a responsibility and yeah, it does weigh really heavy on me. I really struggle with it sometimes because like my role in life was just to be a role model to my children. And even then, can I just say, I am messing it up all the time, like all the time. Um, and, 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 you know, that's something that I say to my kids. I always say, look guys, first time parent, first time child, we're working this out. Let's meet in the middle somewhere. Let's kind of just get it wrong together. And that's kind of what we do. And but, that's wonderful. That's yeah. so wonderful. Yeah, we just get it wrong together. That's how we that's how we kind of address the parenting and child thing. We're like we're getting it wrong together and somewhere we'll meet in the middle. And and that works for us. But to be to be a role model outside of my own children and my own nephews and nieces is really scary because it is a massive responsibility and I don't want to ever be seen to be doing something that uh that that is that upsets anyone. But again, you know, like I'm still only just human and I'm always going to make I'm going to make mistakes. And so some, when I kind of step back, I kind of realize, hold on, you've got to give yourself a break. You are still human and you are going to make mistakes. But I understand the importance of representation and, and doing this for all of the little versions of me who were desperate to find themselves. Because like I ask myself, I always ask myself, like, if you don't see yourself, are you, do, if you don't see yourself represented, do you even exist? And in, and in some ways, like I know growing up as a child, like although I grew up in a Bangladeshi community, I didn't see myself in books. I didn't hear my story in books. I didn't re- see myself in girls' magazines. I didn't see myself on television. And so did we even exist? Or do we, do we just not exist at all? And I think by doing this job, 
and sticking at it and saying I'm here to stay says is to me it says to those little versions of me who are going to grow up you know and, and want to do something like this they're going to look at me and say well she exists she looks like me I exist and I think that's really important to know that you exist and that you're here and and that's why I think the burden's heavy and 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 you know my little shoulders can only take so much but I, I know how important it is. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to stick at it for a while. And it's amazing to hear because, you know, like the, there's, you know, the good immigrant came about like partly in a weird way as a response to how the press treated you and Mo Farah, like, and we wanted to kind of respond to that. And then when the book blew up, I spent so much like, you know, so many writers kind of coming up to me and going, oh man, this is so amazing. I just feel very, I feel like stuff matters and I feel like really, I feel like this is a really important book for me. For the first couple of years, I was so overwhelmed by it because I am used to being in this little hovel just writing away. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I'm not, I'm not a public persona. It's very overwhelming to con- yeah. constantly be told that this thing that you did has changed people's lives. And so I just really shied away from it. And I, and I found that I was just undermining the book and I was undermining the impact that the book had on people's lives. And that was the wrong way to do it. Yes, you know, we are role models and like, you know, me obviously and... <laughs> a lot less less visibly than you but um the important thing is for us to to be visible and be um you know own the kind of the influence that we've had but at the same time just remind people like the worst thing we can do is allow ourselves to be put on pedestals Mm. you know we have to be seen as human we have to be seen as fallible because otherwise none of this will ever change yeah And, and i think it's a lot to do with you know like you don't um because you know, we do we do it's true we do in our, even in our culture we celebrate everything but you are not allowed to um that constant you have to always be humble about it and we were mm. raised to always to never have a big head you always humble you don't talk about your achievements you just keep it and the only people that talk about your achievements are your parents you don't you don't talk about it it's your parents job to show off and so i think <clears throat> there's a little bit of that I to retrain my own mind to say it's okay to say that you did good. It's okay to say that you achieved something. And that's that's been a whole other training process for, for me because growing up, you don't say that you did good. You know, your parents say it, but you don't you don't talk about it. And I think that's a whole other training process for me where I was like, no, 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 it's okay to say you did good. And whilst I kind of always look for validation from my parents, I'm always kind of like, I like throw things in front of them. I'm like, oh, look at this. And they're like, nope, not going to read it. We don't care. <laughs> and they don't. They genuinely will never read anything I've written, will never look at a book, never, anything, nothing. And and like I used to not be okay with that. I was like, why don't you care? Why do you not care? And, and actually, to them, it's just like, you just do a job. It's just a job. And they don't, I suppose, don't understand how important this job is to me and why I continue to do it, even though I struggle sometimes. And, and, and I suppose now it doesn't matter. So, like to me, it doesn't matter so much because um, I know how important it is. Just like hearing the story about your, your daughter and, and, and the, way she, the way she reacted. Like that's, that's important because she'll mm. grow up knowing that she's represented. She'll grow up knowing that, you know, she sees herself in me. Mm. And, and, and that's, that's, that's what it's all about. Exactly. And also the, the fact that you are very open about the stuff that, makes you very vulnerable where you've talked about mental health and where you've talked about colorism and and racism and and stuff that you've come up against you know that i think is the making of a of a brilliant role model like someone who is able to be honest and vulnerable as well as 
you know make people see that they aren't infallible um just to kind of finish up i've got i've got a couple a couple more questions for you so obviously what the big th- hold on let me just adjust this i've been slipping off this cushion for the last i'm sat on the floor i'm sat on the floor i love <laughs> sitting on the floor i had to buy like a yoga block to help me to sit cross-legged on the floor because, oh did you yeah, how's it going I still can't do it. I've had it for no, no. I just can't sit sit cross legged for very long. I'll probably end up keeping this in the, in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, the central theme of the book, the thing that I'm trying to in, interrogate in myself, um, and it's something that I'm asking all of my guests, is how do we raise our kids to be joyful and ambitious, and boundless and realistic about the world? when the world seems bleak and I'm so angry about it and sad about it. So I just want, I just wanted to put that question to you. What, what are your strategies for ensuring that you're kind of raising your kids to be joyful, but also know enough about the world so that they're prepared when stuff happens? Um, I think if I kind of go back to how I was raised and we all take, you know, life is a, you know, we'd have to take these lessons and learn from them and, and the truth is, look, we're, like I say, I say to my kids all the time, like, oh, I'm only going to be a parent once and you're only going to be kids once and that's it. Like, we're not going to get a second chance. So we're going to get stuff wrong. Like, we are going to get stuff wrong. We're not going to get it right and everybody will do things differently. But for me, I think the key thing is honesty, which is something that I wasn't, like, I, I felt like my kids, my parents always protected me from the wrong things. Like, they protected me from the from, from the wrong things and, and I think they didn't, um they were scared of things and i understand that now like growing up it's like they feared um independence they feared um forward thinking you know they feared being outspoken they feared all of that because they spent their whole lives just living and that was it they they didn't care about anything else it was just survival for them um and i think in some ways it's a privilege that, that that you know my kids don't have to worry about that and lots of children don't have to worry about that anymore because we've kind of almost one generation later we've made it a little bit easier for them but the truth is it's never going to be plain sailing it's never going to be um you know they are going to be faced with colorism and racism and, and you name it like even to this day they're still they are experiencing them now as young teenagers so they will, you know, like my eldest wants to become a botanist. Does he see, does he, you know, is he represented within that community? He absolutely is not. So for him, who does he look up to? Um, so it, it's tough. It's really, really tough. But for me, it's honesty. It's being really honest with my kids, something that I didn't grow up with. Um, and I think it's when my kids ask questions, like they know when you're lying. That's something I've learned. They know when you're lying and they know when you're giving them a half truth and so now um when they ask me a question i'm just like straight out there that's what it is and the best thing about that is that they've come to an age now where they debate and they talk and they ask questions and often i step back and watch them just go at it and just kind of have these interesting conversations with each other and and i think that for me is like they are always like I, as a parent, I'm always going to be scared for them. You know, I'm always going to be afraid and I'm going to want to say no. But um, they have to like, they have to live, they have to survive and they will, their, their hurdles will be different to mine. 
and just like my parents I'm going to want to say no and protect my children um but you know if I'm having honest conversations with them um and they have the tools they need to get through life they're going to have to make those mistakes themselves and I think that's I think the difference for me is they I I'm really honest about what they might face what they might not face but equally it's balance you know I don't want to put the fear of god into them like I don't want to scare them and 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 not want them I don't want the scare I don't want to scare them so much that they don't want to experience the world anymore because it's still beautiful and it's still wonderful and they've got so much to see and experience and I don't want to take that away from them either so whilst I'm honest with them I'm also kind of like it's also wonderful and it can be great but they have to believe that they can create that space for themselves because that's ultimately what I'm doing is like my biggest thing I tell my kids is elbows out I know as at 36 working in an industry where I am not represented be it publishing or media I know I have to go into meetings into filming into 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 all these spaces and feel I can feel that moment where my heart stops and I got a lump in my throat and I and I I tell myself you can't do this you can't do this you don't belong here you can't do this and that's when I tell myself elbows out and it's like if you physically think about sticking your elbows out but if you think about what that does is it's like i keep telling myself you need to create space for you so you can create space for others and so in those moments of doubt when my kids say mom i don't belong here i can't do this i i we say elbows out and it's about creating space i love that i love that so much that's so brilliant but also it reminds me of that thing that you do the that one does the power stance where yes to feel powerful you make your body as wide as possible yeah and you're taking up as much space but also you're leaving yourself open open to vulnerability yeah. um which is you know a great way of thinking about power i think uh thank you so much uh final question before we go what is the best advice you've ever received as a parent and what's the most useless advice you've ever received best as parent as a best advice as a parent Yeah. Oh, um uh, oh gosh, let me think. Oh, you people give you too much advice, don't they? <laughs> they really uh, do. It's like you know so unwanted. So unwanted. I remember, oh, I'm trying to think now. It feels like such a long time ago. I'm trying to think about um what did they say? Oh, 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 I'll tell you the worst advice. Kids pay for themselves. No, Liars. They no, they don't. <laughs> they They're do so not. expensive. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. And then when you go into the realm of three kids, done for. Bigger car, bigger house, everything. Like that's it. So kids don't pay for themselves. That's a that's, lie. That's rubbish. I know how much I cost my parents and I know I've never paid them back and I know how much my kids cost. So Exactly. If you ever go into the realm of three, you'll see. You'll see bigger house, bigger car, bigger everything. I don't regret her for a second, but I'm just saying like somebody <laughs> said kids pay for themselves, big lie, big lie. They don't. They get more and by the way, Nikesh, they get more expensive. They get more and more expensive. <laughs> more and they just want more things. They just want stuff. Just yeah. always want stuff. I'm just saying Amazon are taking a lot of my money at the moment. <laughs> a lot. Um and best advice, um I think um some of the best I think uh for me Somebody said uh look your children in the eyes because I think that's something that stuck with me especially after the first lockdown is that I'd realized that they'd just grown up so quickly that I'd stopped just looking in their eyes and so now sometimes it just they, 
it, it was it sounds like such a simple thing to do but if you just like now I just go and hold their faces and I just look them in the eyes nothing to say nothing to do I just look them in the eyes because like they grow up so quickly they grow up so quickly and I just sometimes like even my big old teenager who's taller than me I just grab his face and I just look in his eyes because like there may be a time where I can't look in his eyes anymore and vice versa and so like that was what some of the best advice was just look in their eyes because you know we, we're always so busy and we're always running around just take a moment and just do that you you need to do that grab your babies and just look them in the eyes i'm gonna do that straight after this i love yeah. that so much <laughs> nadia thank you so much thank you thank you to my publishers bluebird and to acast and to nadia and all the people at ak management and to you please buy the book and remember to like and subscribe and rate the podcast and all that stuff i've been waiting to say this for months brown baby a memoir of race family and home is out now i hope you buy it see you very soon brown baby i am brown baby yes i am i Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.